This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we venture into indigenous regions of Latin America. How is the drug war threatening tribes in Colombia? And why is the Belo Monte Dam opposed by indigenous groups in Brazil? We'll have answers a bit later, but first, Jenna Longoria has an update on the legal cases opposing the Belo Monte Dam, along with the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. At least 48 people were killed and dozens injured after an explosion which set off a fire at Venezuela's largest oil refinery. Investigators have yet to determine the precise cause of the explosion, but government officials have pointed to a gas leak. Venezuela's president, Hugo Chavez, praised those who fought for days to extinguish the fires. Today, we don't have a single tank that's on fire. We need to make some special recognition. Our firefighters are heroes. The whole country applauds them. All of us should recognize their work. Chavez says he's getting aside $25 million to clean up the disaster and repair or replace 200 homes near the refinery, which were damaged in the fire. Hurricane Isaac rampaged across the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico this week, leaving death and destruction in its wake before making landfall in Louisiana. The region felt the storm's deadly legacy the most strongly on the island of Hispaniola, with a toll of at least 24 dead in Haiti and five killed in the Dominican Republic. Mexican authorities took a dozen federal police into custody, accusing them of involvement in the shooting of two U.S. government workers. The two wounded workers were on their way to a Mexican Navy training camp when they were pursued in a high-speed chase south of Mexico City. Their pursuers riddled their car with bullets. Mexican prosecutors have not yet charged the federales who were arrested for their participation in the shooting. Mexican law allows them to be held for 40 days without formal charges. The U.S. State Department said both victims are in stable medical condition and were evacuated to the United States. The U.S. government has yet to release the names and positions of the two wounded Americans. A Mexican judge has ordered the arrest of the former governor of Tamaulipas, a state along the U.S.-Mexico border. Mexican authorities have asked Interpol to help track Tomas Yarrington, who is now considered a fugitive. Mexican authorities say Yarrington was involved in drug trafficking and may have accepted millions of dollars in payoffs from drug cartels. Both the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel have bases of operations in Tamaulipas. Colombia's President Juan Manuel Santos revealed this week that the government had opened peace negotiations with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC. The FARC is the largest rebel group in Colombia. Colombia has endured 48 years of civil war. The warring sides unsuccessfully tried peace talks in the 1990s, but that effort collapsed a decade ago. Chile, Norway, Venezuela, and Cuba will all aid the peace effort. Formal talks will open in the fall in Oslo, and then we'll move to Havana. Work is set to resume on Brazil's Belo Monte Dam after the Supreme Court overturned a lower court's decision to halt construction. A regional federal court ordered the immediate suspension of work on the multi-billion dollar dam project two weeks ago. The lower court said indigenous people of the region had not been properly consulted, but the Supreme Court rejected that argument. Environmentalists have criticized the project. Brazil's Congress approved construction in 2005. The government says the dam would make Brazil more energy self-sufficient, 
while opponents argue it will flood a vast area of the Amazon, displacing thousands of indigenous people and others. Once completed, it would be the world's third largest hydroelectric dam. We'll have more about the project later in our program. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jenna Longoria. As we just heard, Brazil's Supreme Court has put the Belamonchi Dam back on track. The project has drawn protests internationally, including involvement from rock stars and movie directors who have tried to focus protests around the project. Professor Eve Bratman from American University recently returned from Brazil and the construction site. Here are excerpts from our interview conducted just before the Brazilian Supreme Court issued its ruling. Well, I, I was at the dam site from June until July of this past summer. And while I was there, there were protests in the lead-up to the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit. These were protests organized by the Movimento Xingu Vivos Pra Sempre, which is the main social movement organization that's in opposition to the dam. But it was in conjunction with um, the Belém Comité Xingu Vivo, as well as uh, a number of student groups and International Rivers Network and Amazon Watch and uh, multiple other NGOs that were participating and bringing in people who were concerned about the dam's construction from literally all over the world. There were participants from Turkey who are also being affected by dams in their region, as well as um, from Israel, from Austria, myself from the United States, and plenty of locals there. For people don't know, this dam project will, if it's successful, will build the third largest dam in the world. But it has some impacts on the local indigenous communities and other communities. Yeah, in fact, the effects are principally on the the urban population in a city called Altamira, which which these days has a population of about 100,000 people. And of that 100,000, 20,000 are anticipated to be displaced. This is one of the stories that's not being talked about as much in the the traditional news because of the appeal of, of questioning indigenous people and their likelihood of being displaced. So just to clarify, indigenous people will be affected by the dam. Their rivers will, um, will have worse fishing and undoubtedly their transportation, which is primarily river-based, will be affected. Um, the social effects are, are, of course, also appalling for these indigenous tribes, which increasingly, as they voice their opposition to the dam, are being essentially bought off by promises of getting new motorcycles and more money for their community. You've given us a wider context about where this problem is and the greater group of people that it affects. Why hasn't that been given as much coverage? I think the media is most attracted to the stories that have the most colorful appeal, which is only natural. And telling the story of the urban residents that are going to be displaced by this dam is, is a little bit um, more complicated and, and far less colorful than telling the story of indigenous peoples. And in fact, the indigenous peoples have been, uh, have a stronger case in the legal system. So the current contestation over the dam that's in the courts is all about the right to free prior and informed consent from the indigenous groups. So that has been an important thrust of, of this whole very complex issue. And it's worth reiterating that any Brazilian you ask about the Belamonchi Dam will say, talk about Belamonchi, and it's equally contentious to talking about who's your favorite soccer team or what's your religious ideology. It's just so heated uh, of a topic because it's been brewing for the past 30 years. Give us some perspective then on the politics of this judicial decision. 
the Rousseff government, Dilma Rousseff, who is the current president of Brazil, is seen as a progressive. It's surprising, I think, for some outside of the Brazilian context to see projects like this moving forward that don't seem to fit the progressive agenda. Indeed, Rousseff is a progressive, but she has largely burned her bridges with most of the environmental community in Brazil. And so that's one point where you see what had been a, a relatively strong alliance under Lula between the Greens and the the social progressives. That would um, be President Lula da Silva, who was her predecessor. Thank you. Um, that alliance has really um, fallen into tatters during the Husef, um administration, and, and she has championed this dam from the start. And I should note that Lula also, President Lula, also became uh, an, a very vocal advocate for the dam's construction uh, towards the end of his tenure. So what we're seeing is increasingly an environmental movement that feels a lot of tension with supporting the Husef administration. And this comes down in in all sorts of um, very interesting local social dynamics. For example, the movement of people affected by dams, MABI, in Brazil, supported the Rousseff administration's bid for the presidency. And what this means is that they're between a rock and a hard place over the Belamonte situation. They have to support Rousseff, but they also don't really want to see the dam built in the first place. And so there's a lot of ironies and contradictions that are now affecting the social movement groups that, that have a stake equally in both social justice issues and environmental issues. You mentioned how controversial this is in Brazil, certainly controversial in some communities outside of Brazil in the international communities. But yet we, I don't think that this is a, is a controversy that most people know about. But yet it is also metaphorical, is it not, about where Brazil is in the world these days, what this project says about its development. In some ways, isn't this like Brazil's Hoover Dam project? This puts them on the international map. Certainly. This project is is almost more symbolically important than it is in, uh, important in terms of energy production. It's part of a larger energy strat- strategy by Brazilian uh, energy planners to to work on what they call complementarity between Amazonian dams throughout the Amazon basin uh, that would then uh, function to to unite and reinforce the the energy grid um, that exists in the country. Um, so the Amazon rivers would be producing when the the rivers in the south, especially the Itaipu Dam, is at a low level of energy production. So what this symbolizes is Brazil on the rise, an, an economy that is growing still at a at a very fast pace, and that sees itself in comparison to countries like the United States and European nations as having a relatively low energy output per person. And so symbolically, this dam symbolizes this key struggle for what will ultimately be a larger strategy of damming almost all of the main tributaries to the Amazon River and ultimately helping the country um, forward on its path towards what they see as good development. Um, And there's clearly a model at stake here. For environmentalists, it's just the opposite. Right. Damming an Amazon River, especially when indigenous lands will be affected, and especially when this is one of the last undammed rivers to the Amazon, is absolutely abhorrent and, and resonates with us as falling into the same mistakes that have been made uh, in cases like the Hoover Dam. But yet, Rio Plus 20, which was the UN conference on 
ecology, on, on the state of global warming, on all of these things held in Brazil this year in the face of this also going on. Isn't that also sort of a mixed message? It is, but by most accounts, the Rio Plus 20 conference was was largely about a sort of co-opted environmental agenda that, that when I say co-opted, I mean that was largely dominated by business interests. And the, the Belmonte Dam, as well as other hydroelectric dams, are not considered by many accounts to be dirty energy. They're considered, at least by the World Bank, still to be part of um, a, a renewable energy resource. And so there is a lot of tension and contradiction there. Nobody will deny that the Belamonchi Dam is is a, a purely clean project, but by most considerations, and, and certainly by how the Brazilian government marketed itself at the Rio Plus Twenty conference, it was as if pitching Belamonchi as a clean project would help to further this agenda of the new green economy. Are you telling us that the environmentalists are losing in Brazil? I think, in short, um, it's not an easy. It's not an easy battle for environmentalists, and it certainly feels like a, a very pitched battle at this point with, um, with dire consequences, because all of, all of these other Amazonian dam projects are at stake. Belamonchi is the first, but this is one of the, the key struggles that will then determine um, much more about both livelihoods in the Amazon region and also environmental conservation there. Dr. Eve Bratman, thank you for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. It was a pleasure to be here. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Earlier this month, Imena Sanchez returned from an extended trip to conflict zones in Colombia. Sanchez is with the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA. This week she shares with us about the threats to Colombia's indigenous people. The United Nations Development Program, UNDP, released an alarming report last week about the conditions of poverty in Colombia. And what it found was that the most affected peoples in Colombia in terms of chronic poverty and um, obstacles towards overcoming that poverty are the indigenous. And it found that among the indigenous, the Approximately 40% of those that are suffering from the chronic um, malnutrition are uh, the children of indigenous people. And there's some word from that particular report that about a third of the indigenous groups in Colombia are at threat? Yes, um, the National Indigenous Organization, ONIC, has been sounding the alarm for several years now that there are approximately 102 ethnic groupings in Colombia of indigenous people. They make up only about 1.5% of the total population. However, among those groupings, there are 34 that are at risk of becoming physically and culturally extinct in coming years. The rate at which indigenous people have been becoming extinct as people has shot up in the last 10 years. 
in Colombia and has worsened, basically starting under the President Uribe administration and has not gotten much better under the Santos administration. One of the reasons for this is the continuing armed conflict that's going on in Colombia, the longest civil war in in the currently ongoing in, in the hemisphere. Yes. And uh, some of the problem that we've talked about is also has to do with the drug war, which is intermixed with this conflict. Unfortunately, indigenous groups in Colombia have been subjected to all the negative possibilities of internal armed conflict and violence. So on the one hand, um, they suffer from displacement, massacres, killings, and other violent attacks, including landmines in their territories put by the various different uh, armed groups, uh, both the legal and illegal armed groups commit violations of international humanitarian law and human rights in indigenous territories. Um, at the same time, narco traffickers that are at in certain cases allied with the illegal armed groups of the rebels and the right-wing paramilitaries that still exist in Colombia um, use some of the indigenous territories to grow coca, and that leads to both violence from the groups directly against the indigenous people as well as violence and negative consequences of the anti-narcotics policies, many of whom funded by the United States in Colombia, one of the worst offending policies uh, against the cultural uh, integrity and physical integrity of indigenous people is the aerial fumigation program, which is financed by the United States, whereby uh, U.S. contractors buy planes uh, uh, above areas where coca is thought to be grown, and they dumped herbicides um, randomly into those areas. Unfortunately, the herbicides don't always hit just the coca, but they hit absolutely everything else. So schools, water, uh, the food crops of the individuals in that area, and it basically burns everything that it hits. And uh, indigenous people are dependent on uh, the waterways, the natural waterways, so they drink that water that is polluted with the herbicide. And uh, you often see that indigenous people get skin rashes and that some of the children and others suffer uh, consequences of this poison being uh, fumigated in their territories. And, and what sort of consequences beyond the rashes that you mentioned? Illnesses such as diarrhea and other ailments. Um, and basically beyond the actual health effects of, of those direct causes, which the U.S. government and Colombian government say is something that can't be proven, although um, indigenous people themselves have documented these cases. Um, you have the situation where their food crops are completely destroyed, and as a result, they must either become displaced or move into another area, sometimes a hostile area controlled by an illegal armed group, in order to survive. And so this is a very um, irrational policy because on the one hand, coca cultivation continues to be robust in Colombia and um, cocaine production remains robust. And what this uh, fumigation policy does is just disperse the coca 
and leads the narco traffickers to break it up into smaller pieces. So what used to be a country that was where the coca cultivation was very much um, concentrated in the southern departments and some of the north is now found throughout the entire territory. And more and more, um, the coca cultivation finds itself in the more remote areas. And those are the areas where the indigenous and Afro-descendants people lives, and those are the most biodiverse areas of the country. And so you have this um, policy that is irrational, is not leading to a decrease in coca production or cocaine trafficking to the United States, and is severely damaging to these vulnerable groups, indigenous peoples that have been living in these areas for, you know, generations. Is this also pushing those groups into cultivation of the coca if they can't grow their own crops? Um, usually uh, with indigenous people, there is a very strong uh, belief that uh, aside from coca that is cultivated for traditional purposes, and some of the groups have traditional ceremonies or true coca on a daily basis and traditional purposes, that coca grown for other purposes is not something that they do or that they're interested in. The coca cultivated for the traditional purposes is usually very little that is cultivated, not, not sufficient for any production or that sort of thing. Uh, often the coca that is produced, um, it's produced by rural farmers, non-indigenous people. Sometimes people brought in to do that. Um, the actual cultivation itself is uh, supervised by members of illegal armed groups, so paramilitaries or what have you. and. When local uh, growers are involved, it's usually because it's coerced or forced. And indigenous and Afro-descendant people uh, tend to see themselves as completely autonomous from these um, networks. And so they tend to be very much against doing this. Um, Afro-descendants, for example, have organized multiple efforts to eradicate coca that was illegally grown in their territories because they're very much opposed to all the violence that comes with uh, that coca growing. So the Afro-Colombians are not involved either in 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 supplying this beginning part of the drug chain that ends up in the United States. Uh, the overall Afro-Colombian people know, and they actually have a very strong stance against it, and their Afro-Colombian organized movements are opposed to it. Um, individual Afro-Colombians may be involved. Let me go back to talking about the individual indigenous groups that are affected by the fumigation mm -hmm. policy. Can you tell us the specific groups that are most at threat from this and where they're located in Colombia? Well, in the Department of Nariño, which borders Ecuador, this is an area where there's a lot of coca growing, um, well, partly because of the dynamics of the conflict, but also because of the roots that exist to uh, take cocaine out <laughs> to Ecuador. And there you have uh, one of the worst affected groups is the Awa peoples. Uh, the Awa peoples have also been subjected in the past couple of years to several very serious massacres committed, some by the FARC guerrillas and some by other groups, uh, precisely because of the fact that the Awa people have taken a very strong stand to protect their autonomy. And that is a point of view that um, most illegal armed groups and even the government uh, doesn't tend to support. Um, if you go further north towards Panama and you look at the Department of the Choco, there you mostly have uh, Afro-descendant inhabitants and they share their territories with the Embera Catillo peoples. And those groups have also been very hard hit. 
um, due to fumigations and due to internal armed conflict and violence. Again, because the Choco serves as a corridor for a lot of the narco traffickers who want to get their cocaine out and an arms corridor for the arms that come in to uh, supply these groups. And unfortunately, given that they're remote areas and so forth, this is where the indigenous people live and they're often um, the indirect consequence of all the negative violence that comes from uh, the narcotics trade and from the general internal armed conflict. We should mention for our listeners who don't track Colombia so closely that the FARC is the Spanish acronym for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. They go by the name FARC. They're the leading um, revolutionary guerrilla group in the country. There are other groups. We, we should also, though, though, note that the Colombian government and the U.S. government for the past several years have talked about um, Colombia turning the military tide against mm-hmm. the FARC and, and giving us the impression that, that the government is winning that battle. And by doing that, they, as you mentioned, they have pushed this battle out into border regions, into areas of the country that may not have been involved in the armed conflict in the same way in the past. Well, first of all, it's very important to note that the United States has given Colombia since 1999 over $8.5 billion in aid the majority of which until the year 2007, 80% of which was military aid. And that would be Plan Colombia that started that under the Clinton Plan administration. That was Plan Colombia that then evolved into um, other foreign operations um, legislation. Uh, therefore, the United States has had a very strong and keen interest in there being results in this war. What we have seen is that under President Alvaro Uribe Vélez, who was president for um, two terms starting in 2002, um, a mano dura approach was taken in the internal armed conflict, a democratic security policy which basically said you're either with us, as in the government, or against us, uh, took hold, and we saw a spike in abuses committed by the armed forces. There were more than 3,000 extrajudicial killings of civilians, and these are purely civilians, um, orchestrated during that time because the policy was that you had to up the body counts of guerrillas. And so you sort of had a killing frenzy on the part of the armed forces to get incentives such as vacations, massages, time off, phone calls, that kind of thing, which I think, yes, you can say that the security situation improved in terms of the FARC um, basically was severely hard hit due to these policies, but it came at a tremendous human price. And some of that price is being paid in the indigenous areas. Yes, and for indigenous people, this is what they call the worst period in their history because indigenous people have managed to survive in Colombia because they've taken an autonomous approach. First, it's important to highlight that indigenous people have collective land rights in Colombia that are protected by the 1991 constitution. And part of those rights state that any activity that is done, economic, political, military, in their territories must be previously consulted with those um, 
indigenous leaders in that area. Well, what happened with the democratic security policy is that all bets were off and um, military might, military presence, any sort of outside intervention was put above any rights. And this was devastating for indigenous communities. And so that's why you saw such an increase in the deaths, killings, and massacres and displacements of indigenous people beginning in 2002 up until this time. Another part of this policy was that the first phase was to basically uh, security areas, but the second phase was to build up economic development in these areas. But by economic development, we were talking about an economic model that um, basically promotes multinationals going in, extracting the goods, and taking them out. We're not talking about joint economic projects with the indigenous people. So the combination of the two has had a tremendous negative effect on indigenous people, which is why you you have seen that there have been various indigenous uprisings in, in recent, um, recent months in Colombia. Imana Sanchez of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse today. Thank you very much. We want to thank one of our loyal listeners for tipping us to the problem of herbicidal spraying and its effects on the Imbera Cotio and the Imbera Chamis tribes in Colombia. We'll have more on conditions for Colombia's endangered indigenous groups on next week's program. If you have a story idea we should follow like that one, or if you have a reaction or comment to our program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. For our entire team, associate producer Jenna Longoria and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.